Amen. As we gather and worship this morning, we the band played, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take just a few moments, if it's okay, and talk about uh, talk about the Trinity uh, as we dismiss our kids to kids church. Uh, there are many scholars that believe that the Trinitarian idea or the the idea of a triune God is something that was developed much later. Uh, in Christian thought, and it wasn't until the second or third century that that this this idea of the Trinity really came to fruition. And in in one sense, that's true, because Christianity is is spawned from Judaism, and Judaism is is uh, dogmatically monotheistic. But all throughout the Old Testament, there are aspects of Trinitarian thought. As we get into the New Testament, and we'll look at our passage today, uh, it, is, it is wrought with, with deep Trinitarian truth that God is indeed one. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, yet He manifests Himself in three very distinct persons. And I want to point out to you very, very briefly uh, that the book of Genesis chapter 1 begins with the Trinitarian idea. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, Verses 1, 2, and 3, we see all three persons of the Trinity. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, And God created the heavens and the earth. There we see God the Father. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the Spirit of the Lord was over the surface of the deep. God the Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it said, The Lord spoke the world into existence. The Lord said, Let there be light. We see in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 14. And so in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 1, we see all three persons of the Godhead. And we get to Matthew chapter 28, where we'll be today, and we see Jesus making the statement to the, making the, statement to the disciples, go and, make disciples and baptize, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you look at that text, if you look at the language of the text, it says baptizing them in the name. Name is singular, yet we see it followed by the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, equating all three, Father, Son, and the Spirit, to singularity of personhood, or singularity of being, yet, yet a triune personhood. And so it, it, is, it is a very complex idea, but... It's from the beginning, it's from eternity past to eternity future. So I, that, that's, that's free, that, that was bonus for you this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And everybody today, after, after they get home, they're going to begin their own personal study of the Trinity. And I'll say it like Augustine said it, if you can figure it out, it's not God. So... Uh, if you do figure it out, you need to start over because you haven't got it. You've just, you, you think you've gotten it. Uh, Augustine said, if, if you can understand it, then it's, it's not God. It's, it's, God is so much bigger and so much beyond our understanding. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be reading verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be reading verses 16 through 20. And for all of those who have been with us through the entire study of Matthew you'll 
keenly observe that today we finish the book of Matthew. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I think we're, we're going on almost three years in the book of Matthew. So I have a pastor friend of mine, took him five years. So, so we're, we, are, we are on breakneck speed. Matthew chapter 28, we'll read verses 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, we pray that we would indeed heed the Great Commission, that we would be disciple-makers, that we would go into all the nations, that we would make disciples, that we would baptize, that we would teach. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your abiding presence with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I pray that whenever you leave here today, that you will understand that God's call and God's commission for all of us is to be disciple makers. Not to be convert makers, not to be proselytizers, not to be Baptist makers, not to be church goers, but to be disciple makers. I want us to begin, and, and it, it, it's, it's tempting to jump right into verse 18, But I want us to begin with verse 16, and I want us to understand what what the context was, what was going on. Now, last week was was Easter Sunday, and and, uh, I left left Sunday morning, and I I told Joel, I said, I I just, I felt like I was all over the place. I felt like I I, I didn't in any way encapsulate the the, the power of the resurrection. I was meeting with a, a pastor friend of mine this week, and, and I was just sharing with him how frustrated I was. I thought that it was just, you know, the, the, the message was just, was just empty, and it was weak. And he said, you know why? I said, please tell me. He says, because there is no sermon, there is no message preached that can encapsulate the power of the resurrection. And even the greatest pastor and the greatest preacher and the greatest sermon that has ever been preached or will ever be preached pales in comparison to the the glory of the resurrection. And that is the reality that there is nothing on this earth that will ever come close to the power and the glory and the majesty of the resurrection. And whenever we try and encapsulate it, whenever we try and communicate it, we do it in injustice. Because nothing, nothing will ever match the resurrection. At the resurrection, Jesus defeated death, the grave, sin, once and for all. And that is the context that we pick up on. Jesus has just defeated death, the grave, sin. He has defeated it all, and the disciples have seen Him. They have seen Him bodily. Thomas has put his hands in his side and touched his wounds. They have seen Jesus feed them there on, on, in John chapter 21. They're walking on the sea of, uh, they're, they're fishing, and Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee. 
and, and, and they come to Jesus, and, and in his bodily resurrection form, Jesus serves them. He feeds them breakfast. And they see Jesus, and they, they watch him, and they interact with him in his glorified state. And the disciples are they're confused. They don't know what's going on. They know that they watched him die. They know that they saw him be buried. They know that he is now alive because they've seen him. They've touched him. The disciples are scared. They don't know if they're the next ones to be crucified. They don't know if they're the next one to be arrested. They don't know if, if, if Pilate and the high priest are now colluding to, to arrest them. They don't know what's going on. They are, they are hesitant. They're doubtful. The scripture says that. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I want to point out three things about doubt. And I want to point out three things about, about this particular passage. First of all, God is not threatened by our doubt or our unbelief, church. God doesn't get upset whenever, whenever, whenever we are slow to believe. God doesn't get upset. He doesn't get his feelings hurt whenever we doubt. God's a big boy. He can handle it. I have three beautiful children, and, and I think I, I say this all the time, that, that God gave me children simply so that I would have sermon illustrations. For no other reason, God gave me children. And, and there are times whenever, as I am parenting, my children are, are, are childing, and they are acting and they are behaving like children. And I, as, as the parent, sometimes, I, as the parent, will act like a mature adult, and I will parent them, and I will discipline them, and I will teach them. And they don't always enjoy that. They don't always like being told what to do. They don't always like to be made to take a bath uh, my, I have a, um, I have a 13 year old and, uh, when he goes to grandma's house, grandma doesn't make him take a bath. And I, I keep warning him. I say, son, you're going to be the smelly kid. You have to bathe. If you don't bathe, you will be that kid that nobody wants to sit with in class. You have to bathe. And, and, and he says, well, I'll bathe when I come home. But at grandma's house, there are no rules. Grandma says you can eat whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, you can, you can not bathe if you don't want, you can stay up as late as you want. Grandma's house, there are no rules. But whenever they come home, there are rules. And when they come home, there are rules, and their kids don't always like the rules. But you know what? That doesn't, that doesn't bother me as a dad. Because I know that it's good for him to take a bath. And so whenever he throws a fit because he doesn't want to take a bath, do I get my feelings hurt? No. I say, go take a bath. And he starts telling me how mean I am and how horrible of a dad I am. And Okay, whatever. You're 12. You're 13. You know, you're 7. It, it, it's okay because I understand. I know that I love him and I want what's best for him. And if I, as a human father, can understand this and I, I don't get my feelings hurt whenever I discipline my children and they throw a fit, why do we think that God in His great grace and in His great mercy and in His great wisdom is any different god loves us infinitely more than we could possibly ever love our children god knows what is best for us infinitely more than we could ever know what's best for our children so whenever god disciplines us or he gives us 
gives us clear, clear direction in his word, and we doubt or we have unbelief or we throw a fit or we whine and complain, it doesn't challenge, it doesn't threaten God. He's God. He can handle our unbelief. I want us to understand that the scripture says the disciples doubted. And Jesus says, oh, well, if the disciples are doubting, then, then surely I have to wait until they believe before I give them my great commission. No. Look at the text. It says the disciples doubted. And the very next passage says, and Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go. I want us to notice the disciples' doubt did not in any way threaten God. Second point I want to make is their doubt did not hinder their obedience. Their doubt did not hinder their obedience. Jesus said, go to Galilee. He said, I will meet you there. Go to Galilee. And they doubted. It says clearly in verse 16, that verse 17, that they were doubtful. That there were some of them who were doubtful. Now maybe it wasn't Peter. Maybe it wasn't John because they had walked in the tomb. Maybe it wasn't Thomas. He had stuck his hand in the side of Jesus. Maybe it was Matthew. Maybe it was Philip. Maybe it was Bartholomew. We don't know. But the scripture says that some of them were doubtful, yet they were all there in Galilee. 1 Samuel chapter 15 says this. It says it's better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey than sacrifice. God desires our obedience. Whether we fully believe or fully understand or or, or can grasp the reality of, of all that's going on, that is not near as important as us being obedient to what God has called us to do. There are some days whenever I don't really know what God wants me to do as a pastor. I can can confess this with with all sincerity that there are some days whenever I wake up and, and I really don't know what it is that God has called me to. But I know that I must be obedient. What does that look like? I don't know but I'm going to strive to study God's word, to preach God's word faithfully, to love God's people, to serve him this best that I know how. And there are days whenever I don't know if I'm doing it right. And there are most days whenever I can can conclude that I'm certainly not doing it right. But my desire is to be obedient. And in fact, earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus Jesus expounds upon this idea. In Matthew chapter 21, he talks about obedience and the importance of obedience. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, he gives this parable. He said, but what do you think? A man has two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And the son answered and said, I will, sir. Yet he did not go. And he came to the second son. And he said the same thing, but he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterward, he regretted it and went. Which of the two sons did what his father wanted? Second, to obey is better than sacrifice. The doubt of the disciples did not hinder their obedience. The third thing I want to point out to you is the doubt did not hinder Jesus' commission. I want to point out that the work, that the disciples' obedience, their obedience was predicated 
upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus starts out the Great Commission, and he doesn't say, all right, guys, you have to figure this out. No, he starts off saying, all authority has been given unto me. In John chapter 13, 14, and 15, Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit that will, that will enable their obedience to the Great Commission. And so we must understand that our obedience is predicated on God working in us and God working through us. Their doubt did not hinder Jesus' commissioning because Jesus understood their obedience would be predicated on the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's look at the Great Commission itself. Now that we understand that it's okay to doubt, now that we understand it's okay to to not have it all figured out, it's okay to to, to not know what we're doing, but we are going to strive to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, what does that look like? Matthew chapter 28, let's look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to point out that the role of the followers was to make disciples. There are several verbal clauses in this passage. And we're, we're, we're going to take a grammar lesson here for just a few moments. And many of you are thinking, I've already graduated high school. I don't have a clue uh, what, 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 what a participle is, what an imperative is. I, I learned that when I was 16, and I'm done. But, but, but stay with me, and I want to explain something to you, because the language here is, I believe, very, very important for us to understand. In this passage, I want us to look at verse 19. Uh, Chris, if you can put verse 19 up here. In verse 19, it says, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look, put up verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, along with you even to the end of the age. There are several verbal clauses. Go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. These are the main verbal clauses in this passage. There is only one verb in this entire passage that is in the active tense only one and that verb is make disciples that's the only verb that is in the active tense the verb go is a present active participle that means that it is a verbal clause that is used as an adjective the word baptizing is also an active participle it is a verbal clause that is used as an adjective the word teaching is a verbal clause that is used as an as an adjective these are all active participles so what jesus is saying is your primary responsibility the active imperative the command is not to go the command is not to baptize the command is not to teach the command is to make disciples is to make followers. Not converts, not proselytes, not Baptists, not Protestants, followers of Jesus. The role of a disciple is to make disciples. So, 
What of these participles? Going, baptizing, teaching. It looks like this. Make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. As you are living your life, as you are going about your daily life, as you are at the ball field, as you are at the supermarket, as you are in your job, as you are at your school, as you are going, make disciples. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 127, verses 3 and 4. I want us to understand that this is not a new concept. Psalm 127, the psalmist writes this. He said, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. God has blessed you with children for one purpose, so that you can equip them and then shoot them into the darkness. Notice the language. As arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. What do you do with an arrow? You stick it in your quiver and say, look how beautiful my arrows are. Look how wonderful they are. No, they are made with a purpose, and that purpose is to be shot from a bow, is to pierce the enemy. That is the purpose of the arrow. The purpose of God's children is so that we can pierce the darkness. There is a temptation that we, there's a temptation that, that, that is very real and very palpable in, in the Christendom, in the church culture today, that we want to protect and we want to create this bubble, and we want to create this, this safe place for our kids. And indeed, we should. We should protect them, and we should cultivate right understanding. And, and, but we must understand, we must balance that with God's great commission, that we are to send them into the world to be light in a dark place. Jesus says you don't take a light and hide it under a bushel, but you put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who see. Jesus said you are light of the world, you are salt of the earth. And so may men see the, see the light, so men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a purpose that God has given to us, and that purpose is that we pierce the darkness with light. And so when you are interacting with people at your workplace, when you are at the ball field, whenever you are, there is a role that God has given you, and that role is to make disciples. One of the greatest responsibilities that a mom has is to make disciples of her kids so that when she sends them into the world, they will be equipped to make disciples of their friends their neighbors. The most effective means of evangelism is not the preacher who knows how to preach and the preacher who knows how to share the gospel. The most effective means of evangelism is a plumber who loves Jesus, is an electrician who loves Jesus, is a stay-at-home mom who loves Jesus, an accountant who loves Jesus, a store manager who loves Jesus. Why? Because they are the ones who are interacting with the lostness. They are the ones who come in contact with every day the darkness. And they can pierce the darkness with the love of Christ. Church, we are not called to keep aquariums. We are called to fish for men. 
We must understand that God has gifted us with the grace of God and He has called us to be a fragrance of Christ to a lost and dying world. Amen? But that's uncomfortable, preacher. That's okay. Jesus gave the disciples very specific instructions. Make disciples. When? As you go. Where? Everywhere. Make disciples. He gave them another participle. He says baptizing. As people are brought into the faith, as people believe in Jesus, as people believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the Scripture teaches us that we are to baptize, that we are to to baptize them in the same manner that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, in the same manner that John was baptizing, that we are to baptize them as a symbol of inclusion, as a symbol of of part of a community. And so we are to go into all the world. We are to baptize. We are to bring them into the body of faith. And lastly, we are to teach them. God meets us where we are. He meets us in the depth of our depravity. He meets us in in the the wrecks of our lives. He meets us in our depravity. He meets us in our despair. He meets us in our despondency. But He refuses to leave us there. Remember where you were when God called you out of destruction. He called you out of despondency. He called you out of depravity. But He did not leave you there. He met you there, but He did not leave you there. He brought you into light. And He brought men and women into your life to teach you that there is a better way to live. That there is hope for the hopeless. That there is is peace. That out of the ashes that there can be made beauty. God, in His great grace, uses His Word to teach us and to train us and to sanctify us so that we don't have to live the way we once lived. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Paul says this as he's given his farewell address to the church in Ephesus. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore I testify you this I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Why am I innocent of the blood of all men? Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. One of the reasons that I believe it's so important to teach expositionally, that is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is I don't have the privilege of avoiding a passage of Scripture. Whenever I preach through the book of Matthew, whenever I get to to Matthew chapter 18 and deals with church discipline and it deals with with confronting sin. As as a pastor, I don't have the luxury of saying, yeah, well, we're not going to talk about that today. I have to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And it's so important that we as as Christians understand that there are things that are going to be difficult for us to hear. There are things that that, that, that we're going to hear from God's Word that we can't say amen because we've got to say ouch. We've got to say that 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 is applicable to me and that causes me to change the way that i think to metaneo to 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 repent to change my thought process paul says this in first corinthians chapter six 
Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You know, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. There was a time in our lives whenever we were all dead in our trespasses. But by God's grace, He has saved us. He has sanctified us. And it's our responsibility as believers to make disciples. And part of making disciples is that we're to go. We're to go to the highways and the byways. Sometimes we're to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to China and to India and to Morocco and to South America and to Central America. Sometimes we're to go to the ends of the earth. Sometimes we're to go across the street. And when we do, we're to baptize. Whenever there are those who place their faith in Jesus, we are to bring them into the body of Christ. But that doesn't end that we're to teach them the whole counsel of God's Word. Because such were some of us. And then Jesus makes this statement in Matthew chapter 28. I'm sorry. Yeah, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He finishes the same way he begins the book of Matthew. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus ends his great commission with his abiding presence. He says, guys, you have a grave responsibility. Your role has been ordained by God. Do we realize, I I, I want us to wrap our brains around this, that God in all of His great power and all of His great wisdom and all of His great sovereignty chose to use broken vessels, ignorant fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, He chose to use broken people to be the ordained method and the ordained means of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. He chose to use you and me to be the very means of the Great Commission. We are plan A and there is no plan B. God desires to reach every nation with the gospel and He chose to do that through you and I, and there is no plan B. We are plan A, and there is no plan B. That ought to be weighty. That ought to to have a sense of, 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 oh man, (laughs) you sure you knew what you were doing, God? Because I am woefully ill-equipped. And you're absolutely right. And that's why the end of verse 20 is so important. Because you and I cannot fulfill the Great Commission. We can't do it. There are some days whenever I can't even parent my kids. Some days I can't even run my own household, let alone fulfill the Great Commission. There are some days whenever whenever I I, I, I can't even can't even pay my bills. I can't I can't do the very the very the very simple things in life. How in the world am I going to fulfill the Great Commission? Verse 20. The presence 
of the God of the universe is abiding with us. I want us to understand that, that Jesus, giving his marching orders, bookends it. The whole book of Matthew is bookended with the abiding presence of Jesus. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew chapter 1. The first time Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first time he is introduced as the abiding presence. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel shows up to Joseph and he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and will bear son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God abiding with us. God's presence forever with us. That's how Jesus is introduced to, to, to the gospel. That's how Jesus is introduced to the audience of the Gospel of Matthew. And how does he end the Gospel of Matthew? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's abiding presence. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it so comforting that God has given us this great commission? And he says, but it's okay because I am going to enable you to do it. It is not up to your power and your strength. It is up to God and his great grace and his great mercy through the abiding presence of God. The authority of Jesus is what will fulfill the Great Commission, not the ability of man. Because you and I are going to mess it up. I've already messed it up. You and I are going to fail. But you know what the great thing about the Gospel is? Is that Jesus anticipates and expects failure from us more than we do from ourselves. That's why He gives us grace. Remember the Last Supper? Jesus looked at Peter. Peter said, I'll never deny you. Jesus expected failure from Peter more than Peter expected it from himself. And even in the midst of Peter's failure, Jesus washed his feet. He loved him. Jesus died on a cross to take away his sin. Jesus rose victorious to purchase for him eternal life. And then has given him the great commission and says, Peter, James, John, all the disciples, all of my disciples, you have one job. Make disciples. Everywhere you go, baptizing them, teaching them, and here's the kicker, I will be with you. Through my Holy Spirit, I will give you the ability to do what you cannot do. So here's your marching orders, church. Make disciples. Of your co-workers, of your neighbors. Of your friends. Of your family. Of your acquaintances. You can reach the world in a way that I never can. In this room alone, we have a network of people that can impact this city in a way that no single church can. 
doesn't matter how many programs a church has, doesn't matter how many, how many, how big the services are, how many, how many people attend. There is a reality that you as an individual in your daily lives can reach people that the church never can. Because your coworker that sits beside you may never show up at a Bible study, they may never come to a church service, but you know what? They got to come to work every day and sit right next to you. And you have a responsibility to be a fragrance of life. That mom that brings their kid to the soccer game every week may never come to a church service. They may never dawn the doors of a church. They may never come to an event. But they're bringing their kid to the soccer field every day. You have the responsibility to be the fragrance of life, to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this grave responsibility. Yet you've promised us your abiding presence. God, we understand that we are woefully ill-equipped. We understand that there's no way that we can carry out your great commission. Therefore, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, direct us, fulfill us. Lord, there are those here this morning who desperately want to be obedient. Yet they don't even know what that means. You know not. Come to me. And ask of me and I'll tell you great and mighty things which you know not. For the very first time this morning, you realize that God has called you to be a disciple maker. Maybe you need to come down to this altar and pray. Maybe you need to to ask God, who is it, God, that that you would have me share my faith with? Who is it that, that, that you would have me make a disciple? Maybe God has placed that one person on your heart, that neighbor, that coworker, that friend, Maybe this morning God wants you to pray for them. Pray that God would give you the opportunity. Pray that the Holy Spirit would go before you. Church, we are plan A and there is no plan B. Now may you burden us with the reality that our world is dying. And they're going to spend eternity in a Christless hell apart from faith in Christ. Maybe there are those of you here who need to place their faith in Jesus, who need to be baptized, who need to become a part of the church, of the body of Christ. During this time of invitation, May you do business with the Holy Spirit. Don't leave this place without being obedient. Your doubt does not hinder your obedience. God, may your Holy Spirit move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.